Hey everybody, my name's Captain Ozzy, and you're listening to the Eastern Current Fishing Podcast. Today I got the privilege to sit down with Captain John Mauser of Telling Tide Guide Service. We talked about everything fly fishing, from striper to albacore, and of course how we like to feed redfish on the flats. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as we did. We're excited to announce the Eastern Current Online Angler Series that will be kicking off this spring with a three-tournament, artificial-only redfish series. You can fish all three tournaments in the series or just one. The tournaments will be hosted through the iAngler app and you can participate from any state. The first tournament will be March 24th and 25th with an online captain's meeting the night before hosted through our Facebook page. The redfish tournament will consist of your longest three redfish per day under 32 inches. This is just the start to our online angler series and we're excited to bring you many more tournaments for redfish, speckled trout, flounder, and more. If you're interested in fishing the spring redfish trail, be sure to stay tuned as we will be bringing you registration information next week, April 14th, as well as a link to the full list of tournament rules and regulations. Feel free to reach out to us on Instagram as well. And if you have any questions between now and then, we're here to answer them. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an iStrike Texas Eye. Dave and Ralph at iStrike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Eastern Current on Patreon. There you'll be able to find our weekly Ramp Talk podcast where my guide buddies and I discuss our day-to-day fishing on the way to the boat ramp in the morning. You will also be able to find extra video content that you can't find on YouTube. If you've loved listening to the Eastern Current Podcast, subscribing to our Patreon is a great way to help support the show. All right, well, Captain John, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. Before we jump into anything, I have a personal question. What's the secret to having such a perfect mustache all the time? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, there, there is no secret. It's just, uh, it's like a beard. You just ignore it and just let it go. (laughs) No, but in all serious, man, I am stoked to be able to sit down and talk to you today. Uh, before we get into it, uh, just tell me your story, kind of how you got into it and how you got to where you're at. Yeah. It's, um, there's a, I can, there's a beginning and there's a point we're at now and there's a whole lot of story in between it. So I'll try to, for the listeners, kind of keep it short and concise, but we'll see. So, um, I'm 42 years old. We moved to, I was born in Virginia Beach, and we moved to east, northeastern North Carolina uh, on the Chowan River in the Albemarle Sound when I was three years old. And first time I remember picking up a fishing rod, uh, my dad took me fishing. Uh, I was like five years old, and we he had a buddy on the Chowan River and had like cypress stumps and cypress knees and stuff. And we would go catch bluegill and pumpkin seeds and green sunfish and stuff like that. So that was kind of my, my intro to fishing. And then... I was like five years old. So when I got about 10, my dad brought home this beater of a bass boat. And, uh, I mean, it was so, you know, been in the sun so much that you, 
the clear coat was gone off of it and like the the glitter on the bass boat if you ran your hand down the bass boat you'd cut your hand on the <laughs> glitter it was it was bad and he's like it'll wax out so that got me when i was probably about 10 years old into bass fishing and uh you know the first time i threw a chartreuse spinner bait and caught a largemouth bass you know i was hooked on that that was that was cooler than bluegill and bobbers for me and probably around that same time maybe a year later uh i remember being in kmart and uh walking down the you know when I was a kid, if I went to like a Walmart or a Kmart, I walked down the, the fishing aisle. I didn't care about the toy aisle. And I'd go look at all the, you know, the Rapalas and the, the Rebels and, and all the different lures and the spinnerbaits. And they had this little section that had fly rods. And so I talked my mom into getting me my first fly rod. I don't even remember what it was. It was probably like, you know, a cheap Shakespeare combo. And back then, all you fished with was um, Betts poppers and little foam spiders. And so we got that. I probably hooked myself in the back as much as I hooked fish, but that kind of, that, that, yeah, that was my intro to, uh, to fly fishing. And then, um, because I was born in Virginia beach and I had two uncles that, uh, lived on the lower Chesapeake Bay. So probably t- about the time I was 13 or 14, they kind of got me into saltwater fishing and I'd, I'd fish off the piers in the outer banks, um, a couple of times and, you know, caught spot and croaker and stuff, but they took me to the lower Chesapeake and they said, here's a mirror lure. Here's a light action rod with six pounds strand on it. And those are speckled trout. And mm-hmm. so we went and waited and did those. And there was an amazing striped bass fishery along the Bay Bridge Tunnel back then. So, you know, you'd just see acres and acres of stripers busting on the top in the fall and uh, great flounder fishery and sheep's head and uh, spade fish, all types of stuff. So that was kind of that that escalation of, of learning about fishing. And, and back then, as far as I knew, I didn't even know about trout fishing on fly. I thought fly rods were just for bluegill and bass. So didn't do any saltwater fishing at that point or saltwater fly fishing. And that just continued to grow. I ended up going to school at uh, UNC Wilmington uh, for marine biology because I was always into the ocean. And uh, that's kind of where I got hooked on uh, like kayak fishing and, and shallow water fishing for redfish and things like that down around Fort Fisher and behind Wrightsville Beach. Uh, not fly fishing for them, just uh, spin fishing and bait fishing for those fish. And then we moved up to Swansboro, North Carolina, uh, my fiance and I at that point, um, in 2004. So been up here about 18 years. And I started working for a public aquarium up here at the beach. And one of the guys I worked with was into saltwater fly fishing. Mm-hmm. And he kind of reintroduced me to it and, and showed me all that stuff. And um, I, within a year, I'd uh, got my first little eight weight. It was just a little $100 TFO combo. And I uh, went out there and just in the sound and beat the water to a froth with it. I think I caught a flounder first and then uh, went offshore with a buddy and we caught a little mahi or two on it. So that was kind of my intro. Um, within a few months, I bought a 10 weight and uh, went and caught some albacore at Cape Lookout. Like once you catch like a 15 pound albacore on a fly rod, like you're done. So I went probably, you know, I don't know, eight or so years where I wouldn't touch anything but a fly rod at that point. And then, um, Continue. I worked for 18 years for the public aquariums in North Carolina. It's a state government job, and I was looking to make a little bit of extra money. Uh, my wife and I at that point had one kid in daycare, and we wanted to have another one. So what can I do for a side business? And that led right. me into starting a guide service. So I started guiding in 2012, uh, mostly inshore stuff, and then I kind of just branched out from there and did some nearshore stuff, mostly fly, and uh, it's just continued to grow from there. I, I quit that aquarium job two years ago and I've been running that guide service full time now. So mm-hmm. it's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah. 
I was sort of taken back at first when you were talking about when you moved and, and how long you, you said 2004. I'm like, okay, it's like 10 years ago. And you said 18 years. I'm like, oh, my yeah. gosh, it is 2023. <laughs> I, I, it, it flies, man. Like, I've got, you know, I, I I still feel like, you know, I'm a kid, but I've got a kid who's 8 and 14 now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, time, man, time flies. Yeah. So, tell me about that transition coming from uh, a quote-unquote real job into guiding full-time I mean was that a little scary or how was that transition going from one to the other yeah so uh prior to uh quitting my full-time career and pursuing uh you know being an entrepreneur and trying to grow a business more um I'd done a lot of scary things in my life I'd been in a bad car accident uh where I broke my neck in several places I got married I had kids. All, all these things are scary. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. But the honestly, leaving the comfort of a full-time job with a guaranteed paycheck where you didn't really even have to do a great job. You just had to show up and <laughs> on time and, and not leave early. Uh, that was the scariest thing of all the things I've ever done. Um, and it, it just like a lot of things in life, like things have to build up to push you to the point where you make a jump on something like that. Yeah. So it was not carefree or easy at all. There was a lot of planning. There was a lot of prayer. There was a lot of conversations with my wife and my family. Um, there was a lot of research to make sure, like, is this parachute going to open when I jump? Yeah. And so it was. It was honestly, I quit. Uh, walked away from that job in late winter of right as the season was starting, late winter of 2021. Um, but I had decided like two years prior that I was going to quit and and be a full time guide. And so there becomes a saying of, okay, you're guiding part-time on the weekends and holidays. You're running 50 trips a year. Now somehow you've got to build it up to where you can walk away and be able to support your family. So I was running every trip I could. I was burning up sick leave. I was doing every, yeah. you know, vacation leave so that I knew I had that, that point to jump off on and right. uh, try to pay off as many bills as we could so that I didn't need to make as much money. Um, so there was a lot of planning. It was, it was definitely a scary thing I did. And, you know, walking into a job where you had, uh, been there for 18 years and you walked up to your boss and said, Hey, uh, I'm leaving. And like, it's final at that point. And you know, you've burnt that bridge and you can't go back. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, that was the scariest point. And then five seconds after that was the most freeing I've ever felt. And then, you know, two years later, no regrets. There's, there, you know, when I left, I was scared that, well, what if I, need to go back and I can't go back. Like, am I going to be able to go back to my boss and talk to him and say, this didn't work out. Can I have another job? And once you get away and and you start, although I work harder now uh, as a business owner than I did working for someone else, there's no way I would ever go back. Like it's so freeing to be in control of your life and to set your own schedule. Even though you work seven days a week from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed at night, you're, you're on call. You also just have all these other opportunities you're in control of your growth you're in control of you know where you're going to go you're in control of making other people's day better and they're paying you for it so yeah um, it's just it's such a great freeing feeling and um, I will work myself to death before I go back and work for somebody who doesn't appreciate that I work for them that's right although sometimes um, I do miss PTO that paid time off that doesn't exist anymore (laughs) I know I uh it was nice to have weekends that were actually weekends. It was nice to stand on the front of a boat. And now like my life is where like I have to leave the state and go to Louisiana or Florida 
to get on the front of a boat because I have to get far enough away from business to be able to have some free time to, <laughs> yeah. to go fishing. So um, that changes, but I can tell you that staying on the back of a boat, watching other people catch fish, once you've caught enough fish in your life, it's uh, to me, I enjoy that way more to see somebody else catch their first redfish than me catch my thousandth redfish. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Um, we're to some degree still fishing every day. I mean, absolutely, whether you're doing it through the angle or, or, or however you want to look at it, I still feel like um, X amount of days a week, I'm still fishing, you know. Um, but in all these, you know, we don't have PTO. We Every day in the summer is a 14-hour day. All of those things, if you even want to call them negative things, don't even compare to, to how great the job is and how lucky I feel to even be able to do it. Um, but – Walk walk me through your year, um, your your January to December. Walk me through what your guiding looks like because you got a pretty unique way of doing it. Very jealous of it, actually, how you've segmented it up, and just kind of walk me through that a little bit. I, I think that um, you know, there's that same variety as the spice of life. I think it's the same thing with business. If you're not going in and doing the same thing every single day, you know, if you've got something to look forward to the the next season of fishing. Um, and North Carolina is a 12 month a year fishery here, which is what's great. It just changes what your opportunities are. Um, keeps you excited about it, looking forward to it. Uh, keeps you always learning. And also I think it's a, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. It's a, it's a kind of a safety net because if, if you're relying only on one species of fish or certain fishery and then regulations or water quality or loss of habitat or something affects it, you've got other, you know, you've, you've thrown your lines out in different directions. So you've got other opportunities. So, Basically, right now, um, the only thing we're doing is uh, we're right in the middle of our winter redfish fishery. So the cool thing about redfish in North Carolina is that you can catch them 12 months a year. And sometimes the months that you think are probably the the ones you're going to least want to fish are actually some of the best months that you can fish for them, which is, you know, I consider the wintertime a great fishery because we've got our shallow water, uh, clear water, crystal clear water, schooled up redfish, sight fishing, uh, the best way I can uh, compare it to something would be like it's bone, like bonefish in the Bahamas, except it's like 40 or 50 degrees and not 85 degrees outside, and there's no uh, no palm trees. But otherwise, it's like that. Um, that fishery lasts through generally the end of March or early April. Um, it depends on the water temps and the bait returning back, and those fish, those schools start to break up, and they get in there kind of, their, their swing their swing of things and to get into that spring and summer type of fishery around the time that's happening in in early April uh, we've got some cool stuff happening near shore so as the waters are warming up you've got uh, a short couple week run of false albacore that show up uh, Atlantic Bonito um, bluefish gray trout uh, later towards the end of April early May the Spanish mackerel show up so we kind of switch gears and and, and jump off of those redfish schools that are breaking up, and we go fish the nearshore waters from a mile to 10 miles out, fishing the wrecks and hard bottom ledges and, and chasing those fish on fly and spin. Um, as that's kind of starting to wind down, uh, head up to the Roanoke River at Weldon, North Carolina, and we spend two or three weeks chasing the striped bass that are spawning up there. And that usually ends sometime, uh, you know, first, second, third week in May. Um, by the time I get back home, I'm kind of in the, the summertime swing of things, it's your normal, you know, redfish on top water, uh, gold spoons, fly fishing for tailing redfish, things like that. Uh, that continues on through the summer, and then we get into the the fall. And so, as the the tailors kind of stop, and the 
and, and the redfish fishery starts to change up. That's the same time that uh, all the bait starts pouring out the inlets in September and October and the false albacore show back up and we have an epic two-month-long false albacore fishery. Spanish mackerel are going nuts. The bluefish are there. Um, there's also, you know, opportunities to fish the wrecks and stuff for things like AJs and cobia. Um, so I do that usually through, you know, late September through Thanksgiving. And then, you know, take a couple of days off for Thanksgiving. And then, you know, once those albacore are gone, by that time, usually the redfish are schooled back up. The water's clear. And we go right back into that cycle of uh, wintertime redfish. What an epic way to break up your year. I mean, golly. It's nice because it's hard to believe that you would get burnt out on looking at schools of 50 or 100, 150 redfish in 10 inches of crystal clear water. But like anything else, you can get, you know, you see it every single day and then you're dealing with uh, these fish don't want to eat or you're dealing with uh, there's too much pressure from other guys getting in there and fishing them. But at the same time you're going, Oh man, like in a month, the, the, the Benito are going to be here. And then you do the mm-hmm. Benito and you're, ex- you're, you're already excited about, you know, drifting in the river, you know, listening to the turkeys call and smelling the honeysuckle and catching striped bass busting on the surface. So there's always something nice to look forward to. So even if you're getting burnt out on something, I guess it's like when you're in, school and you're always looking forward to like summer break or Christmas yeah. break. You're always looking forward to that next thing to do. Yeah. So that was kind of my next question. Do you have a favorite or are you just always looking forward for the next or? That's a question that I think people ask me often. And really it, I think my favorite is whatever's coming next. Yeah. You know, or maybe what I'm doing at that point, but you know, even with redfish, people are like, well, what's better is, is tailing redfish in July better or is schools up winter redfish uh, better. It, they're both great. They're just different. Right. So I like steak. I like fried shrimp. I like sushi. <laughs> like I can't, I don't really have a favorite. I yeah. just, I just don't want to eat the same thing all the time. So I, you know, they're, they're, they're so different. Like the, the Roanoke river fishery is such a contrast to pulling a skiff on the flats or to running through the chop off the beach. So, um, I do not have a favorite. I, I right. enjoy every single one of them. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. And, and one thing I think is unique about how you break it up and this is subjective this is my opinion but you're spending every month of your year in some type of world-class fishery weldon rockfish capital of the world cape lookout some of the best albacore fishing and i would argue anybody tooth and nail that north carolina wintertime is among some of the best red fishing you can see in the country i understand louisiana's gnarly I understand florida's gnarly charleston's great texas is good but i think north carolina in the wintertime bangs with the big dogs for the redfish in the winter. Um, so it's really cool that you found a way to break up your year going from one world-class fishery to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, that, that's really awesome. Um, tell, me, tell me about your boats a little bit and how you're able to, to be so versatile in, in how you're targeting these fish throughout the year. Sure. Well, I think like a lot of us who are into fishing in boats, we're, we're usually we're buying a boat. We're either buying a boat or thinking about selling a boat. We're, we're doing <laughs> we're doing one or the other, and uh, you're always trying to find the right boat. And um, I went through a couple different things as I was trying to fi- figure out that fishery in North Carolina. And obviously, the answer is there's no perfect boat for everything. Uh, you can buy one boat that does everything mediocre, or you can buy boats that are more specific. And so, you know, about mm, 12 years ago, I got my first like true polling skiff, and. Uh, because at that point, you know, I was, you know, I, I didn't have the money or the time to go out and, and, you know, spend $200 in fuel and go 
get other buddies to go fishing with me. So I like that fishery. I like the, the, the close by stuff, the shallow stuff, the getting where other people couldn't uh, get their boats up and pressure those fish. So I went the polling skiffer out. Um, that ended up putting me into 2014. I bought a East Cape Fury. I've still got the same boat. It's the first boat I've ever bought that I wasn't thinking about the boat that was going to replace it. So I really enjoy that boat. It lets me get shallow. lets me get away from most of the other anglers, find fish that are less pressured. Um, it's your you know standard deal where I've got one or two fly casters or spin casters on the bow of the boat, and I'm pulling them around in you know, six, eight inches of water, 10 inches of water looking for redfish and things like that. Um, I did fish that boat. It was pretty seaworthy, and I, I fished it off the beaches um, for several years as a guide. Uh, but when I went into going full-time, I realized like I, I can't – wait for those weather windows to run out the inlets here and go chase albacore and the polling skiffs. So uh, I also added a 23 foot Parker uh, as my other boat. And so I don't really have, I don't do the bay boat route, which kind of can do both. I went extremes on either one. So I went like what I thought would be one of the perfect types of boats for chasing albacore or run to the near shore wrecks for AJs and things like that. Or, you know, summertime Spanish mackerel with, with families who were on vacation and then I went the opposite end on the the polling skiff route to try to get as shallow as possible. So mm-hmm. that's kind of, I just bounce back and forth on the seasons and fish both of those boats. Yeah, that's awesome. I think if you're going to have a fly rod in your hands for 12 months out of the year, that's the style to go with the two extremes. That's, that's really cool. Um, so coming from the marine biology background, um, do, do you find that, that that biology background plays a role in your guiding today? I, I do. Um, I probably I, sometimes I have to apologize to my anglers because, you know, I am a science dork. So, but I, I do think a lot of them enjoy it for the most part. You know, talking about the different habitats and ecosystems, and the you know the spartanas and the oysters and you know cyanops ocellatus and and all that <laughs> stuff. So, um, I, I think it does, and you know, I think it um, just weird little things that play into uh, guiding your anglers, like knowing how much stress and handling stress a redfish can take versus how much handling stress an albacore can take versus a shark. Because I had those things like we, we would go out and collect those animals and keep them on display. So we know like what their stress levels are and how they handle how long they've been fought and things like that. Or Mm -hmm. like where hook placement affects a fish long-term health wise and bacterial infections. So, So just weird stuff like that, you know, whether it's a little, little factoid about the periwinkles or whether it's about, you know, how long we can have that redfish out of the water and know that he's going to have a, you know, a good chance of being healthy once we release him. So I do think it plays in. I think um, just being a science dork, it, it also makes me enjoy my job a lot more. I love staying on the top of the platform and, you know, I'm, we're looking for redfish, but I'm looking at the different types of stingrays and all this other stuff. So I can, Oh, well that's a, you know, smooth butterfly ray. He doesn't have a stinger and we can touch that one and this and that. So that's really cool. That did, do you think it played a role in, in how you think about fish behavior or, or how you go after fish? Or are those two separate um, topics or, or compartments? I, I, I do think it's um, they're kind of separate, honestly, because uh, you can take, uh, you know, everybody knows about like permit and the keys, like how hard they are to, to fool them to eat like a crab fly or something and how rare they are. You can put them in captivity and within a couple months they're eating like dry dog food basically as far as fish food and you can throw a six inch mullet in there and a permit will eat a six inch mullet off the surface so the way they you know act as far as their natural habitat although 
in a public aquariums and in that type of setting that I did, um, we try to replicate that as much as possible. It, it's not realistic and you're not seeing the same migrational patterns and, and all those other things, having them in captive. Um, so I, I do think they're a little bit different. I think just like getting into any job, you learn a lot of it um, by doing it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 95% of what I know, 99% of what I know as a fishing guide and, and these fish patterns and what they're going to do and how we're going to approach them and how we're going to cast to them and what they're going to eat. It's just based on gut instinct of years and years and years of thousands of times of fishing that certain Creek or yep. these fish during that season. And I think, you know, if you do like a fishing seminar, people want that magic bullet of mm-hmm. what do I need to look for to know where all the redfish are going to be on July 15th? You don't, you just need to fish July 15th for the, 10 prior years to that and then have a gut feeling like there's there's no answer it's just time on the water um is is your best uh is your best um teacher yeah absolutely man i used to uh i don't want to say get frustrated but i used to wonder what it was about certain people that i would fish with i could you know just we call them fishy people um i was not one of those people i you know my tournament partners the first person that comes to mind because we would be scouting or fishing a tournament or whatever spent a lot of time on the bow with him and he would just make these suggestions that and i could like there was no one plus one equals two reason why he was saying this but at the time he had more time on the water um and i think if you don't have that gut instinct yet it'll come um like i said i was not fishy I was, I'm a very analytical, keep a log, um, but have learned through time on the water, like, you know, something's pulling me this way, or I know that I should be on this side or keep my boat here. Whatever the case is, I think if you're not fishy yet, it's coming. Ultimately, I think you just learn that. It's almost like any other skill that you learn, you know, if if you're a framer, you learn that to put your hammer this way and, and hit it. You know what I mean? Like just, it's a skill that you perfect. And eventually you have that gut instinct. Um, but another thing I wanted to ask you about, man, is you're, you're a very skilled photographer and where, where did that come into, to your outdoor? Have you always been a photographer or how did that come into play and how does that play into your guide service now? Yeah. So, um, back when I was at UNC Wilmington, uh, this was like, right before the Fast and the Furious came out and it was the peak of like the import cars. So we all had like Hondas and Nissans and stuff and we'd all hang out at the Kmart parking lot at night until the police would chase us. And, and, uh, so I wanted to start documenting, this is, you know, me 20 years old. I want to start documenting these cars and racing and car shows and all that stuff. So I went and bought a, just a, you know, 35 millimeter Minolta with a standard lens from back then they actually had camera stores. You walk in and buy a camera and started doing that. And that kind of started a long journey for me where, I mean, this is pre like digital cam. I mean, there may have been a few digital cameras, but it really wasn't a thing at that point. And I, I met some landscape photographers that were doing these beautiful black and white photos. So I got into landscape photography, started found a dark room down in Wilmington that you could pay by the hour to print your own, you know, do your, develop your film and print your own prints. So I, I went and I went from a, you know, a, a 35 millimeter camera to, I, I shot a medium format and a, a large format, a four by five field camera, which is, uh, if you don't know what that is, that's like the Ansel Adams thing with the bellows and the big lens and the ground glass and you throw the cape over your head and you sit there in the dark and you look at the photo upside down and then I would print those and, and do big prints. So I really got into photography that way. I think, um, actually one of the things that pushed me to move up here was 
there was this thing up at Cape Lookout when I was still living in Wilmington. It was called Cape Lookout Photo Studies Program. So every spring and fall, you could come up and you could stay like three or four days at Cape Lookout in the old Coast Guard station, and they would give you four-wheelers and uh, and boats and stuff, and they would take you around so you can photograph the sunrise and the sunset or the ponies at Shackleford and all that stuff. So I started doing that. And those guys were starting to use like digital cameras and the, the first digital SLRs. And I, I did film for a couple of years and kind of kicking and screaming went into the digital route. And then once I got into that and Photoshop and Lightroom and documenting things, I, uh, um, I kind of never looked back. So I was always into land, mostly landscape and, uh, and um, like wildlife photography. And I still am, but I did some people photography and I did some portraits and weddings here and there for money. And as I started to develop the, the guide service, I was already into photography a lot. And I just think, you know, part of bringing in clientele that want to come fish with you is kind of selling them on, on what you do and, and documenting it well. So, you know, even prior to everybody having Instagram stories and reels and all this stuff, and they're filming a guy catching a fish on their iPhone and, and they've got it posted five minutes later, I was still really into just posting high quality photos and, and not just for advertising, but for me, I think that's important for just like somebody has a wedding day. They want to look back on those photos later on and have good photos. I want my anglers to look back and, and get that epic hero shot or that picture of their rod boat over on albacore or them releasing a redfish as it splashes and kicks off. So um, it's a huge part of what I do. I do not let the photography um, interfere with my guiding. So I'm not up there on the platform trying to take pictures if that's going to lessen my angler's chance of catching a fish even 1%. Uh, but once they're hooked up, like I'll, I'll grab the camera out and switch the lens and, and try to document all that stuff for them. So it's just as much for me as for them, but I think they enjoy that. And I think it, I do think it helps a lot um, bringing people in, whether you're using it to blog or, or whatever you're doing. I think it helps the business. Yeah. I'm so jealous of that. So badly do I want to be into photography, but every time I get past that just beginner, I just get like overwhelmed by how much is it, you know, involved with it. I'm like, yeah, well, I guess I'll just stick with my iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> it's on the iPhones. That's the problem is they've, that stuff's gotten so good now uh-huh. that like it, it's harder for people to want to get fully involved in the whole photography thing in the Lightroom because there's so many apps and there's so much stuff and you can get 90% as good. So, yeah. you know, why do you want to put in, a ton more years unless you're just uh, just completely enthralled with it to get, you know, just a little bit better than what you can do on an iPhone now. So yeah. technology is awesome. Yeah, it definitely is. I think I really I'm just in love with the idea of it. Like I like the, the idea of being a photographer and capturing those moments. But like I said, every time I get into it, I'm like, nah, I just use my iPhone. I do try to make sure the pictures of, of clients are good and, and high quality. But like you said, 90% is good. And I'm just not uh detail oriented enough i guess to to really jump into ph- photography i wish i was i'm just i'm not unfortunately and i keep telling myself i'm gonna go and i never will i guarantee we'll touch base five years from now and i won't have a nice camera and i won't be a renowned photographer um the, the, i think the the bane for people like me who are really into it at least i'll speak for myself is that you know there is a difference between shooting you know a real high-end uh, DSLR or I shoot a mirrorless camera now versus like an iPhone or, or a galaxy or something like that is that there is so much more detail and information and, and, you know, all this other stuff that goes with, with the photo itself with those higher end cameras. And when I look at them on a 27 inch screen, desktop screen at home, when I'm editing them and I can 
zoom in two, three hundred percent on a redfish's eye, and I can see all the veins, and, and there's so much detail in it. And you're like, man, this would look great as like a four foot photo on the wall, and then you post it on Instagram, and it's an inch and a half by an inch and a half, and you can't tell the difference in that. You you know how much went into it, mm-hmm. but you can't tell the difference. It's it's like if if you went and spent all day trying to catch this one redfish on fly. And then somebody else goes and catches one on a chunk of bait, and they both put a picture. Like the people who see it don't know the difference. They're holding the you, both holding the fish like a loaf of bread. Exactly, the hero shot. That's, that's it. They, but you <laughs> you know the difference. You know how much more time and effort you put into it. But yeah. the people that don't see it don't know. Yeah, yeah. I guess I feel like that about my flies sometimes. You know, and I'm not a super great fly tire, but I like I put 40 minutes into that fly, and three fish later, it looks like a couple pieces of fiber, <laughs> and then it's some dumbbell eyes. Um, but I mean, if you enjoyed the process, that's what, that's what it's really about. Um, but no, I, I'm very impressed with some of your photography, especially the albacore stuff this past year. That was pretty phenomenal. Um, but as Mr. Versatile with a fly rod, I would love to hear about catching mullet on a fly. I've heard some rumors that you've got some, uh, mullet dialed in on a fly rod. <laughs> the mullet is, is like other things in life where like, you put a bunch of effort into trying to figure it out. And then once you did it and you accomplished it, it was such a pain in the butt that you'll never, ever attempt it again. And that's kind of like my mullet story. I wish, I wish mullet on a fly was easier to make happen because I would do it all the time. I would advertise mullet fly fishing charters, you know, not the little six, not, not the jumping mullet or the, the finger mullet, but you know, those big two, three, four pound mullet that are hanging out in those bays that you think they're redfish because they're pushing such a wake if, if we could consistently do that, I'd have four and five weights on the boat, and we do it all the time. But here's my mullet story. So uh, maybe, gosh, probably about no, 10 years ago now, eight or 10 years ago, I had it in my mind. I'd been kind of playing with trying to catch these mullet. Uh, one thing about mullet, they're kind of like a grass carp where, you know, they're just grabbing, you know, eating along the bottom or they're eating along the surface, eating algae or, you know, feeding on that scum line and whatever's in that line. And they don't, they're not, they're not a predator like a redfish. They're not going to go an inch to the right or an inch to the left to feed. So I was like, well, one, I got to find mullet that are actually eating something. And then two, I got to get a good cast. And I'd heard that you could chum these mullet up on breadcrumbs and things like that. So literally what happened was we were, I I worked with Project Healing Waters for a while and we were fishing um, some neighborhood ponds that were, had saltwater intrusion. Just like if you go down and South Carolina, Georgia, and, and you got these ponds that have like some redfish and tarpon that somehow found their way in there. Well, there was bass and brim there, but there was also these big mullet in there and blue crabs and other stuff. And these mullet are like three, four pounds a piece, and they're just kind of floating around the surface. And the guys were having lunch, and some guys just you know threw their their crust off their sandwich uh, in the water, and it kind of just drifts out across the surface. And I, I looked, and these big mullet are sitting there eating like the the wet. Uh, breadcrumbs that are on the surface and they're like 50 60 feet away and I was like oh and we had some five weights because you know we we were prepped to fish for some bluegill and I had my trout boxes with me and I looked in that trout box and I was like what do I have and I had some like white and off-white um, uh, trout eggs like unweighted little trout eggs that you use in a trout stream on probably a size 12 or 14 hook so I tied one on and I threw it out there and kept messing with them and and I found like if you could eat the get those mullet feeding on the chum line and you could throw that fly long enough away because they're real spooky that they don't spook and you had to line it up perfectly into that line they're sipping if they came along there they'd come up and they would just go and they'd grab that thing and they 
just like a carp, they'd spit it out a quarter second later. So you had to see them eat it and strip strike them. And once I figured it out, I was like, okay, well, this is going to work, but it's, it's kind of a pain because you got to get them in the mood to eat. Um, I've experimented with um, that. I've also got them to eat um, chum them up on oatmeal, like the big thing of Quaker Oats oatmeal. They'll eat oh, yeah. that on the surface. And you can throw something that just looks like what they're eating. A little, you know, like I said, uh, trout egg worked for me, but any kind of little puff of white. And then the other thing I've gotten to eat is when they're eating little bits of algae on the surface, um, the actual fly use is called a greeny weenie. And if you're a trout angler, you might know what a greeny weenie is, but it's basically a little uh, half inch long inchworm fly and mm-hmm. it's unweighted. And I threw that in there and I could get them to eat it. But really the secret is you got to find happy mullet that are kind of pushed back in a bay. You got to find big enough mullet. You got to find mullet who are, you know, at ease and currently feeding on the surface. And then you got to make a long presentation to them and you got to line it up perfect. And you got to hit them the second they suck that thing in because they know it's not real once they grab it. Um, and that's the secret to it. They, they run like on a five weight, they'll take you into the backing and they jump. They're like catching a little tarpon or a ladyfish. So yeah, they're, they're a lot of fun. Um, but it was one of those things where like I did it a handful of times and I said, well, I checked that one off on my list. Move, <laughs> moving on. Yeah. If they, if they got easier, I'd do it. You know, dude, that is really cool. When I uh, heard tale of you targeting mullet with a fly rod, I'm like, that's awesome. Cause I am Mr. Underdog. I don't, or Mr. Underrated fish. At least I love underrated fish. Um, or just underdog in general. I mean, I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. Maybe that's where it comes from. I don't know. Just love rooting for the guys losing. But, um, like, Black Drum, underrated as all get out. Ladyfish, underrated. I love the underrated fish. Um, and talking about this Black Drum, you'll talk about a hard fish to hook on fly. Those will humble, at least for me, they humbled me quick. Um, but that that's really cool. I've never even thought of targeted mullet until I, I saw a picture of you holding a mullet that was really cool um but here in a couple next few months uh we we're gonna be packing up and we're gonna be headed to weldon north carolina like you talked about earlier to target these stripers kind of talk to us about what those stripers are doing and kind of tell us a little bit describe weldon to us and what it's all about sure so as far as striped bass in north carolina go um we used to have this great um ocean fishery form in the wintertime they'd come as far south as cape lookout but you could regularly catch them down around hatteras and uh oregon inlet and those were your your big stripers those 30 40 pounders out off the beach those fish don't really come uh as far south anymore rarely do they come south of the virginia state line we still got big stripers around here they're in the the sound so like the album all sound has you know big female stripers in there and then just like all the rivers here the cape fear the noose the tar the the um the Rona or sorry the album all sound that they've all got like you know your uh your 18 to 25 26 inch male stripers they're in their year round they just kind of move up and down the sound they don't ever go out in the ocean well all these fish they make that run up the rivers here in North Carolina in the spring just like the shad and the herring do to spawn and so every river's kind of got a little bit different season and, and a different fishery for these fish uh, but the Roanoke River is my favorite place to go fish them because it's just it's so consistent. There is a reason they call it the rockfish capital of the world. Um, not every day is guaranteed, and some days you have a tough day there. Um, but most of the time, a average day there is better than a day anywhere else fishing for stripers in North Carolina. And if you hit a good day, it'll melt your brain trying to compute the how good that fishery is. So all those fish they push, um, gosh, I can't remember. It's it's something like. 80 miles or so, 100 miles up river, up the Roanoke River from the Albemarle Sound. And then those fish start showing up 
in the uh, Weldon, Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina area uh, sometime mid-April. Um, and there, it's that's based on water temperatures and water flows. You got a series of uh, of dams and uh, reservoirs up above that. You got Car Lake and you got Lake Gas and Roanoke Rapids Lake, and they all have dams. And the Corps of Engineers uh, controls that flow going down. And so normally in April and May, you've got like a you know eight thousand, ten, twelve thousand cubic feet per second flow, and those stripers go right up there usually within sight uh, or not too far from being within sight of the boat ramp right there in Weldon. And they get up behind the rocks and they spawn, and there's just just massive amounts. I mean, I can't even compute the amounts of uh, those, you know, 18 to 24-inch stripers that are in there. Um, and then a lot of fish, there's a lot of 10-pound fish in there. And then if you watch the electroshockers, the wildlife guys go in there and do the studies, they'll roll up 40- and 50-pound females in there. So they're in there. Um, it's such a cool fishery. Like, you basically have a month or so of just really, really good stacked up, like a two or three mile stretch. It's just full of stripers. Uh, you can catch them on fly. You can catch them on top waters early in the morning, late in the evening. Uh, when they're spawning, that female comes up, there'll be 50 or hundred males that'll come up chasing her, trying to spawn with her. Um, they're super aggressive. They'll eat top. I mean, there's days when you'll throw a top water, uh, either on spinning rod, top water plug, or you'll throw a top water fly and you'll have six or eight stripers chasing it back to the boat, trying to eat it. Um, not when it's not early and late, once the sun gets up and those fish drop down, we just fish three or 400 grain sinking lines and clousers and you can catch those fish all day long. Um, well, that's pretty much it. Like it's just, and, and there's a lot of other cool stuff in there. Like we, every year we catch big common carp in there, fishing stripers, you'll catch suckers. Um, we watched a guy two years ago, hook and fight and jump a 300 pound sturgeon on the Roanoke river. So you, you never what? know. Yeah. I did not hear this story. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, um, I'm trying to think. I'll, I'll give you his name in a second. But yeah, we watched him. They were just up above the rocks, uh, in between the rocks and the railroad trestle, and got hooked up on a spinning rod, um, probably like a 3000 series rod, uh, reel and a medium action rod on like a, you know, just a, a soft plastic bait. And it starts, he had like an 18, 19 foot boat and it was dragging him and the clients around on the front of the boat and bouncing between the rapids and the, uh, the, the bridge pilings and just zigzagging. We're all like, there's a couple of us up there fishing stripers and we're kind of just shouting and joking about, you know, what did you do? Like hook a flathead catfish in the tail or this and that. And I was like, ah, you probably caught a sturgeon just, you know, BS. And I, we'd never seen a sturgeon up there. And about after a half hour, about a seven or eight foot, 300 pound sturgeon tail walks oh across the surface gosh. like a tarpon with his line hooked to it and snapped his line off. So it makes me wonder all those years fishing up there when we thought we hooked a log down there and couldn't break it off, you know, <laughs> was it a log or was it, you know, eight foot sturgeon down there? So it's a, it's an awesome fishery. I love it. Um, I don't want to say it's an easy fishery, but you know, I get to actually sit back and, and, and watch the fish finder and watch my anglers catch fish versus having to constantly pull and be on the lookout for fish that pop up. You know, you're fishing in the blind unless you're surface casting. Um, but it's a, it's a great fishery. And not just for, you know, fly anglers, but, I mean, for conventional anglers, it's a great fishery for kids. Like, if you get, like, some 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old kids that want to have a blast catching fish, what a great introduction to, to catching some game fish. So it's a, it's a super cool fishery. I love it. Yeah. I, w- I was excited to go. But now that I hear the sturgeon potential, I'm even more excited to go. Uh, there is a lot to like about Weldon, though. Obviously, 50 to 100 fish a day not being uncommon. That's reason enough to get excited. But I love the community down there. 
Uh, it's, you know, my phone rings off the hook the whole time. Hey, I'm doing this. This is working. Everybody's talking to one another, um, you know, chit-chatting at the dock or at the restaurant after everybody's trip and talking it and chatting it up. I really like the environment just as much as I do the fishery. It's a lot of fun down there um, in that April, May time frame. I can't wait to get back. Um, and likewise, what you were saying, just looking forward to the next. I didn't think getting into guiding that um, travels would be a part. Like I thought it would be in topsail. Um, but there's a lot about guiding that I didn't expect and, and, and end up falling in love with it. But, um, yeah, I'm super stoked before I go down a rabbit hole. I'm su- super stoked to get back to welding and do that even more stoked now. Cause I'm, I'm going to be on a sturgeon hunt. Um, but so if I wanted to ask you with everything that you do, um, if you had to throw one fly for 12 months, what, what are you grabbing out of your box? That one's easy. Uh, wait, so hold on. Do I have to? Is it one fly design or one color and size also? One one fly pattern. You can have different colors and different sizes. Mr. Bob Clouser, I will be using your Clouser. Um, <laughs> you know, I hate everybody wants to tie cool flies and catch them this unique crab pattern or this shrimp pattern or what. If I have to fish one thing 12 months a year, it's a Clouser. And because I've caught probably every fish that I've caught in North Carolina at some point, even if it's not the main fly we use, we've caught them on clousers. Um, if I had to knock it down to like two colors, I would tie a probably a black over orange clouser with like copper flash for inshore. And I would just do like a solid white clouser, maybe a chartreuse and white clouser just for near shore stuff. Um, but I mean, everything near shore from, from gosh, I'm trying to think if I've caught a shark on a clouser, but something similar, but like AJ's, Cobia, Spanish, Blues, Jacks, Albacore, Bonita, you come in shore, Flounder, uh, Redfish, Speckled Trout, um, Black Drum, I mean, there's Lizardfish. <laughs> okay, uh, Mullet, I think we've caught a Mullet on a clouser actually, uh, by accident. <laughs> but So, I mean, that's the answer. Like, it's, it is it is the, the go-to. So, you know, I have a box that has a variety of different, uh, like, Albi nearshore patterns, all your your um, surf candies and your mush mouths and all these type of flies. And I've got uh, another box that has um, a big box. It's just a variety of redfish flies, all your shrimp patterns and your streamer bait fish patterns and your crab patterns. And then I got one box. that's just nothing but clousers and that box can never be full enough. And so like, like the Roanoke river fishery, for example, like you can throw other stuff at them, but I just bring clousers. Like I'm, I'm trying to tie 200 clousers right now for April and May for, for those stripers. And if I don't use them, I'll use them beforehand on Bonito and I'll use them afterwards all summer long on something. So those flies never go to waste. And then when your clousers get all just chewed up to the point where there's like two pieces of bucktail and one piece of flash and half an eye and the threads falling off of it, <laughs> then you put them in another box. And when the bluefish bites really good, then you just pull them out and you <laughs> use those are your bluefish flies. That's exactly right. That's a really good reminder that I am, uh, I'm behind on my clousers. I, f- I totally forgot that I got to start tying now for how many we're going to use in welding. But um, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I was going to ask you, if you break your year up, striper, albacore, redfish. Um, do you have a favorite fly for each of those? You kind of touched on that a little bit, but for, for the three big fish in your year, what, what are your favorite flies for each? So, yeah, so uh, redfish, you know, if I had to do one redfish fly that I would fish winter, summer low tide, crawling fish, tailing fish, um, Unfortunately, I don't I don't use a lot of stuff that has like a name like it's not a commercial fly, but um, basically just um, I tie these you know 
two, two and a half inch patterns that um, could just as easily be a mud minnow as it could be a shrimp, depending on how you strip it. So I tie a lot of, it's the same basic kind of, I don't know, like, like a Quan style fly. It's a, the tail is, um, is going to be uh, um, craft fur that you'll bar up. And then it's just basically wrapping it with like a Pugliese brush just to build a body. It's got either bead chain or small lead eyes up near the eye of the hook so that it sits up in a fighting position. And I'll throw a couple legs on there and I'll, um, I'll tie on eye stalks, shrimp eye stalks. Mm-hmm. And that, that covered, you know, in winter, I might be fishing it black or black and purple. In the summer for tailors, I might be fishing tan and brown barred up. Um, but that kind of general fly that these redfish are opportunistic that am I stripping it fast and it looks like a, you know, a killie fish that's running from them or am I letting it pop down on the bottom and hop along? It looks like a shrimp. That's, that's a great all around pattern. And I have a lot of different versions of that in my redfish box for striped bass um, due to just a chartreuse and white clouser. If I, if I really have extra time, I might tie it as a half and half and add some saddle, uh, saddle hackles to make it a little bulkier, but just a, you know, three, three and a half inch clouser is all you need on those fish. Um, and like I said, that clouser can be used for a lot of other stuff. And then for albacore, 90% of my flies that I use for albies are either really sparsely tied clousers or some type of epoxy minnow. So if I had to choose one, just a surf candy, and I usually, you know, a few of them I'll have in the box are like your wild colors, your pink and chartreuse. But generally my surf candies for albies are either going to be tan over white or they're going to be olive over white. So are they eating silver sides that are or spearing that are more olive over white or are they eating anchovies that are more tan over white? And I just kind of go back and forth between those and I have them anything from, you know, most of the flies are two, two and a half inches, but I've got some four inch surf candies and I got some surf candies that are, you know, snot bait surf candies that are three quarters of an inch long on a size six hook. Yeah. Um, the, the Albies on, on most days they'll eat, um, clout, you know, sparse thin clousers really well. And that's easier and quicker to tie. But, uh, if you want to feel confident about it, epoxy bait fish will generally outperform a, a clouser, I think for Albies. Nice. So I, I found that what you just said was really interesting when you're talking about fishing for red, make sure I understand you right. But you're putting more emphasis on how you're retrieving it than you are the actual fly. Is that correct? So I think we may have mentioned earlier that like anglers, like at seminars, want the magic bullet on where to find redfish. They also, and, and there's not one, it's time on the water, right? So well, the other magic bullet that they want is what fly or what lure do fish use? And as far as flies go, um, I really do believe that Unfortunately, it's only five to ten percent the fly because redfish eat everything from worms to shrimp to crabs to you know a mouse that's swimming across the marsh, right? So they'll eat anything, mullet, whatever. Um, they're opportunistic. It just needs to. They need to think it's alive and something that even if it's nothing they've seen before. If it looks, I mean, I don't even. You could probably throw a you know a mouse fly or a frog fly, and they'd probably eat the thing. Um, it's ninety ninety five percent presentation. It, it's not the fly. So, you know, I would say for my anglers that come fish with me or anybody that wants to, you know, prep to, to catch like a redfish on fly, don't put all your time and effort into your fly. Put your time and effort into practicing uh, for those scenarios mm-hmm. because you can take the perfect fly and strip it, you know, splash it on a redfish's face and he's going to run from it. You hit him on the tail, he's going to run from it. You strip it straight towards him and he likely will run from it. You can take a fly that's, just kind of a basic fly that's got an outline or profile and there's nothing special of it, but it kind of represents what they eat and you cross their path 
coming, they see it with one eye as it's coming across that path and you get it the right amount of inches in front of them. They don't have to work too hard and you're stripping it. So it's going away from them like it's escaping and it triggers that little light bulb in their brain that that's acting like something that they want to eat. And also they feel like they found it versus it found them. Mm-hmm. Um, that 95% of the time is, is the key to getting these fish to eat. So, you know, that's why I say like I could fish a clouser year round on those fish and be just fine. I like throwing other stuff, but really like it is, um, you know, I have anglers that will sometimes say, Hey man, should we, you know, we haven't got these fish to eat. Um, should we try a different fly? And I might, you know, go with that just so, you know, that they have some confidence in what they're throwing. But most of the time I'll say, I don't think they've had the right presentation yet. So let's keep working on this angle and you'll be surprised. Like, I know you've seen it, Ozzy. You can throw a fly in front of a redfish sometimes if you don't spook them 10 times in a row. And that 10th one, he ignores it the first nine. And that 10th one, the angle's right. Mm-hmm. The strip is right. And it's not two inches above his head. It's right lined up with his mouth. And he just inhales the thing. And you're like, what was the difference? Something about the way you presented that fly to his face. He, he's, he's in his brain. He saw it differently as all those other presentations. And it was just swimming right. And it, to him, his little you know, fault process clicked on. He's like, that's something I need to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really about uh, feeding the fish more than what you're feeding the fish. Yeah, I would have to 100% agree with you on that. And I'll be honest with you, prior to God, when I was figuring this sight fishing thing out, it took me a while to realize these angles. Like I thought 90 degrees, pull it across their face. Or you know what I mean? Just make them see it. Um, but I, I quickly was humbled and found out that it is all about that angle and and it when when that fish realizes there's a fly there it needs to look like a fleeing piece of bait um i used to hate that shot where the fish is coming to you and i've now learned that that's actually a really beneficial shot because you can be short you can be long you can be a little left you can be a little right and it's going to look like a fleeing piece of bait it's it's actually a one of my become one of my favorite shots out, outside of maybe a tailing fish but um no, I 100% agree with you. I, I had to learn how important that presentation was because um, I was just trying to be too black and white about it, you know. Well, think think about this. <clears throat> we'll jump from fly to spin real quick. It, you know, besides topwater plugs, one of my favorite lures uh, on a spinning rod to throw at a redfish is a gold spoon, a Johnson Silver Minnow gold spoon that was invented 5,000 years ago, and it's just... It is the most basic, non-realistic looking thing ever. But when you pull that thing through the dirty water, the way it vibrates and flashes, and it's the presentation. Those fish eat something. They, they react to something that's nothing they've ever seen before, but mm-hmm. it just it triggers them. And so that's why that presentation is so important. And then going on the other side of it, talking about learning those angles, we've talked about time on the water. You know, For people who are getting into this, whether you're fishing with a guide or whether you're trying to figure this out on your own, you know, practice at home is great. It's great to practice in your yard, uh, to practice where you're going to place that cast and all that stuff. But until you're in a real-life scenario where you're on the front of a boat, you're, you're trying to see these fish, you're trying to figure out where they're going, the clock is ticking down, tick, 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 oh, he sees you, he blows off. Until you're in that that circumstance and, and where you can watch these fish and go, oh, he didn't like the where I landed it. Oh, I stripped it this way, he didn't like it. Or he followed it and he sniffed it and he turned off last minute, like, until you're actually out there learning that stuff, you don't really uh, complete the second half of that process of becoming a good fly angler on these fish. So, um, you know, I hate to keep 
you know, beating a dead horse with time on the water, but, you know, practice at home, but don't be afraid to, you don't need to perfect your cast. You need to get out there and see how those fish mm-hmm. react to what you're doing. And then you put two and two and two together. And then like, it just becomes a natural habit of like, you know, eventually you see those fish and you don't think twice about it. Like you're in your back cast, you're already calculating, uh, you, you just see the fish, you start casting, you're calculating what angle he's going in, which direction he's going, how fast he's moving, where, how the depth, and you're dropping it in there, and you, you're not thinking twice, but everything right. lines up. It's like riding a bike. And it's, mm-hmm. that's just from experience of uh, time after time of screwing stuff up. Mm-hmm. You know, you touch the stove, it's hot. You don't touch it again. You go do that, you know, and, and you learn that stuff, and you just put it together, and it becomes natural. So Yeah, it, yeah, it took me a while to build that confidence. Um and I knew that I had finally figured something out when I did something and immediately could tell that was wrong. I'm like, well, at least I know that's wrong. I know what is right now. You know what I mean? Um, but it took me a while to really feel confident in telling somebody, no, like, stop faster, slower. Like, knowing what they want took a while to feel confident in. Um, but once you got it, you, you you end up inevitably putting more fish over the rail. And that's, I mean, that's the name of the game, right? Yeah, and you never 100% get it. And that's what makes what we do so exciting is that, Every single day you go out, every single fish you throw out, every single scenario, you learned a little bit more. And mm-hmm. and so it may be like that, um, what's that law with like the lessening returns? But like, oh, yeah, yeah. But basically, you know, you may be like, you know, you, maybe you were growing by leaps and bounds when, when you first start learning your stuff. Like you really, oh, I can't, you know, oh, you can't hit them in the tail. Right? But now you're like fine tuning it. And maybe you're like. Now, now you go out and you're 97% of the way there, but now you're 97.1% of the way yep. there. And it's a little bit less, but you're always feeling more confident and, and building it. And then you can kind of experiment with things from there mm-hmm. and, and learn more. And sometimes you figure out something that you thought totally didn't work. And yep. wow, they like that actually. Yeah, absolutely. I just realized that uh, in Louisiana, just a couple of weeks back was in Louisiana and um, it was so different. They're like, no, smack them right on the head, force them to see it just anywhere you can. I'm like, what is this? This is so unnatural to me. But uh, that is one cool thing about the fly game, dude, is you're always fine-tuning something. I just recently heard somebody refer to a fly cast as a golf swing. You're going to work on it your entire life, and it's never going to be perfect. And and that's true for, the I think, the the um, the platform side of things, the pushing side of things. You know what I mean? There's I'm always trying to perfect that. or The way I speak to an angler, the way I call a shot – that's the whole scenario that is flats fishing with a fly rod is just something you're always going to be changing and perfecting. And if not little things, then big things, you know, whatever the next new big invention or, or piece of technology is or whatever, just trying to keep up with it and always changing it kind of keeps us going, keeps us coming back for sure. So, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I mean, like, like you said, even from the back of the skiff, we're, we're always learning. Like I, you know, sometimes, you've done something a certain amount of times and, and you leave out parts of it when you're trying to explain to somebody what to do. Right. Like, and, and so just figuring out the ways to you that you can speak to somebody who's never done it so that they can pick up and learn quicker, um, you know, with your, your clock face position and your distance and getting them to see fish and, and just things that you would think that somebody would just naturally assume that you've forgotten that you had to learn in the first place and being able to communicate those things. And also like, you know, we're still get excited on the back of a boat. So when a fish pops up, like, you know, 15 feet away and he's coming at you and I'm going, <laughs> you know, like I'm trying to get the words out to yeah. like, I, you know, I, I know the angler's going, what, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to fine tune. I've gotten to the point where 
I have a pretty good understanding of what you should do from the front of a boat with a redfish or an albacore. Now it's fine tuning that. What do I tell that person who's never done it from the back of a boat so that they can, you know, grow leaps and bounds quicker than I did trying to figure it out myself. Yeah. Yeah. There's two things I did when I started guiding fly fishing trips. Um, and I did these things to, I guess, remind me or just really as a, as a teaching tool to me, there's two things I did. First thing I did, I started to learn, uh, learn how to cast left-handed. I'm right-handed. I do everything right-handed, been fly casting right-handed. So what I did is I relearned how to fly cast with my left hand because I had forgotten a lot of things and that helped a lot. Um, that way I knew how to teach it again because I had just had to teach myself. The second thing I did is I went um, down south to target a new fish that I've never seen that I was super excited about, right? It was, it was a tarpon. So I go down um, and, and hire a guide and jumped on the bow. First tarpon, I don't know, 80, 90 pounds swam by, and I, I couldn't get my leader out. I mean, knees were shaking, heart was pounding, couldn't get my leader out. Um, I think I might have lined him or something. Either way, I, I messed up my first probably my first two casts on these tarpon. And um, it was just a super, super good learning moment. Like, to remember how nervous you get the first time a redfish shows up. Now, you know, we get to see him all the time, but I still catch myself and wonder, like, you know, I'm just as pumped as everybody else in the boat, dang near hopping up and down and, and shouting. And and I'm like, hey, dude, you do this every day. <laughs> like, what? But if I stop getting excited, I guess I need to hang it up. But those two things, learning how to cast left-handed – and going and doing something new and getting just as amped up as the first time I saw a redfish tail were super super helpful to a good reminders at least as a guide. Um, but I would I would suggest to everybody learn how to get cast left handed, especially if you've been fly fishing a while. It was hard. It was really hard, and I still suck with both hands. But it was good learning curve, good teaching tool. I have a uh, I was kind of inspired to do the same thing, and I like I said inspired, but I haven't done it yet. Uh, no, I have a guy that um, he's pretty ambidextrous. And he doesn't back cast, so he's right-handed. But if that fish pops up at 2 o'clock, he switches rods, and he casts left hand just as well as he casts right hand. It blows my mind. And so that's one of those things where, like, okay, John, like, what can you do to make yourself better? And you're exactly right, Ozzy. Um, but, yeah, like, um, I get super excited over these fish, too. And I agree. If you if you, if you you stop getting excited over it, you need to find something else to do, right? Yeah. You're not working as hard, and you're not as present looking for these fish and mm -hmm. stoked and wanting – I have to apologize half the time after <laughs> whether we catch a fish or whether we um, blow the shot. Um, and as fly anglers, we blow shots more than we catch fish. But I have to apologize afterwards because I get so excited. And, you know, I, I put myself in the shoes of that person on the bow and I'm like, I'm like, pick it up, go more left. All right, stop, 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 pick, stop, stop, stop. Don't move it. Don't move it. He's, he's coming under. Don't, 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 don't move it. You're <laughs> other left. You're other left. Left, left, 11 o'clock. Yeah, other yeah. left. Turn your head around. And I apologize because I'm, you know, I get so intense. That's how my brain would be working if I was on the front of the boat. And I think, man, I'm sorry. Like, I hope that didn't come across mm -hmm. as me getting on you. I'm just so excited. And they're always like, yeah, I know. I get it, dude. I'm glad you're excited about it. But right. it's like, yeah, you feel that intensity and that teamwork. Like, we're, we're both working together as a team, you know, bouncing off each other, trying to trying to make this thing happen uh, for this person. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but absolutely. Yeah. I recently made a little post going right into that. And in my little old Instagram world for my few followers, but that's my, it was a video of, of the conversation, you know, how do you see the fish, make the cast, tick, 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 set the hook or whatever it was. And everybody in the boat gets all excited and we're all yelling. And, but my caption was, that is probably my favorite part of the flats game. 
I'm not, and don't get me wrong, I love catching trout, blind casting, and I still love a lot of things about our fishery, but my heart lies with sight fishing, both spin and fly, because I love the teamwork. I love the communication. There's something about that scenario that has got a hold of me. That's where my passion is. But it, 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 I don't care if I'm on the, the back or the front just or in the middle with holding a camera. Like, the whole scene is just has enamored me of, you know, the, the man on the platform sees it. He opens up for the shot. He makes the cast. He talks the other guy into it. Just, I love it. Uh, I'm, for whatever reason, reason has, has just got me. Um, but, I mean, I guess it, there's something about this scene or, or this game that's got all of us. And uh, I, I really enjoy it. And so far, so good, <laughs> I reckon. <laughs> but, um, well, John, um, before we wrap it up here, well, first of all, you got anything else to add to that? Yeah, I actually, uh, I'm glad you asked that because I would have forgot. I'm going to do a shameless plug, guys, so I apologize. Um, we talked about some of the different things we do through the year, and um, something that me and a couple of the guides here on the Crystal Coast started a few years ago because if we didn't do it, somebody else was going to do it, and there was kind of a need for it. And, and all the stuff Ozzy and I have talked about today with, you know, learning as you're, you know, a new angler fishing for redfish and how to present and what flies and all this stuff. There really wasn't any good saltwater fly fishing schools in North Carolina. So a couple of years ago, it was like the year before COVID kind of kicked off. We started something called uh, Carolina Fly Fishing Academy, and it's uh, based in Swansboro. And we do uh, like right now we're just doing spring and fall schools. It's a two day, all day Saturday and Sunday school. And we basically, it's me and a couple other guides and we work to try to basically uh, give as much of our knowledge and experience uh, compacted into two days of, of classes so that, you know, whether you're an angler who um, trout fishes, uh, fly fishes for 20 years for trout and you want to get in saltwater, or if you're a saltwater spin guy that's just had the urge to try to try to fish fly for albies or reds or whatever, um, that's kind of what it's based on. So, it's indoor and outdoor stuff. It's it's not any actual fishing, but we do uh, on the water casting different scenarios. Um, we cast, you know, floating lines, sinking lines. We talk about how to cast in the wind, how to fish off the front of a skiff, how to communicate with another angler that you're working with. Um, we go through all the different types of food, uh, food fish and shrimp and crabs and prey items that are found all down the southeast coast, the types of flies that uh, that mimic those um, all the setups for the different types So you know, if, if somebody's never, uh, you know, purchased gear before, like you know, basically we have a combined between the three of us, you know, like 30 years of experience of buying the wrong stuff and spending <laughs> too much money on this. So it's, it's all that, that we try to put together. Um, so we're doing, the next one's going to be March 25th and 26th that weekend. Uh, it's a nice kickoff before the kind of spring season kicks in, uh, when you kind of get the itch to go saltwater fly fishing. And then we do another one every September that's right before Albi season. So uh, it's a lot of fun. They're small classes, usually about 15 students and a handful of instructors. So it's it's pretty hands-on. So you're doing leader tying. Somebody right there is showing you the leaders. It's not You're not watching it with 200 other people on the screen. So mm-hmm. um, that's my, that's my uh, shameless promotion or plug right there. And I think it's something really cool. And, um, you know, it's, it's selfish too because, you know, if we can – if my anglers or Aussie's anglers come fishing and they're more prepared for it and they spend the money to get on the front of the skiff, um, the more information they have coming into that when they get those redfish to pop up in front of them, the better chance they have of, uh, you know, the whole the whole day is fun, but really, you know, that goal is to have that fish in hand yeah. and get that hero shot. Mm-hmm. And, 
and to pull that off. So, so yeah, I think that's about it, man. I really, really appreciate you having me over. It's, uh, yeah. you know, we're talking about the, the stripers on the Roanoke. That's where we first met and started chatting. And like, you're talking about that community and having dinner and hanging out and stuff at the ramp. And, uh, I think a lot of you, and I, I really, really appreciate you bringing me on here and let me chat with you. And I'm looking forward to going fishing with you sometime, hopefully. Yeah, man, I'd love to do it. And, and right before we wrap up, uh, where can we find you? If someone wants to book a trip at one of these world-class destinations with you, huh? where, where can we find you? Um, so my guide service is Tailing Tide Guide Service, like Tailing Redfish, TailingTideGuideService.com. Uh, but if you look up John Mauser, M-A-U-S-E-R, Google it and put the word redfish or fly fishing in it, uh, you're going to find me either way. So I would love to take anybody who wants to go fishing and, you know, hopefully catch that fish of a lifetime. If not, have them leave learning a whole bunch of new stuff and being a better angler at the end of the day. So that's about it. All right, buddy. Well, I appreciate it. And we'll see y'all next time.